We're on a mission from God. This is St. Longinus' Baptism Podcast Channel, Episode 6, The Naked Cross. Or the heirs of Protestantism. This episode is mainly for Protestants. Or I should say it's aimed at Protestants. I'm going to start off with a couple of prayers. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, Amen. The title of this prayer is, My Sorrowful Mother Help Me to Bear My Crosses. By St. Alphonsus Liguri. My sorrowful mother, by the merit of that by the merit of that grief which you felt at seeing your beloved son Jesus led to death, obtain of me the grace to bear with patience those crosses which God sends me. I will be fortunate if I also shall know how to accomplish. or I'm sorry, shall know how to accompany you with my cross until death. You and Jesus, both innocent, have borne a heavy cross. And shall I, a sinner who has merited hell, refuse mine? Immaculate Virgin, I hope you will help me to bear my crosses with patience and gratitude. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. The second prayer is the prayer to St. Francis de Sales. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. St. Francis de Sales, you set out on an ambitious missionary journey to convert 60,000 Calvinists to the Catholic Church. Though this was a difficult undertaking, you faithfully work to bring souls to God. Pray for me that I may always seek to lead others to God and His church, and pray that I may preserve against all difficulties to lead souls to God. St. Francis de Sales, pray for us. Okay. I want to start out, I'm going to start off with a uh, quote, Paint, I'm sorry, Pope St. Pius X once said, modernism is the synthesis of all heresies. I would also like to add, Protestantism was its seed. All right, so I want to make it clear that I'm a former Protestant. I started out as a ignorant pagan and um, came to Christ as a Protestant, and as a Protestant, I saw uh, 
I saw contradictions in Protestantism and um, I saw the inherent flaws in the theology and so I became a Catholic. Um, so this is not some ignorant know-it-all Catholic telling you, you know, um, things that he has no experience with. I have been a Catholic, or I'm sorry, I've been a Protestant, and I did try to live what I considered my Christian life as a Protestant. But I also wanted to serve God faithfully and truthfully. And the contradictions of Protestant theology um, was a blessing from God in the sense that it showed me that I could not serve God with truth and true faith as a Protestant. Okay. So, after the Diet of Worms passed a decree in 1529 stating that where Protestantism was established, that the governments should not ban the Mass or forbid Catholics from attending it, the German electors of Saxony, Hesse, Brandenburg, Lundberg, and Anhalt all of those were, were Protestant states within Germany, decreed that they were not going to tolerate Catholicism in their territories. And the original meaning of the word Protestant meant no toleration for Catholics. Now, I know that, you know, some Protestants... Uh, Protestantism has been a uh, has been uh, has been defined as uh, uh, you know they were protesting the Catholic Church, but the original meaning that means at the time of the Reformation, the word Protestant meant no toleration for Catholics. That, you know, if you lived in those territories and Catholics were trying to practice Catholicism, well, you were probably going to mess them up pretty badly. Now, in this day and age, some men say that they are Protestants to indicate their hostility to the Catholic religion or to signify that they are not Catholic. I just wanted to give you the original meaning of the word Protestant. It's been lost over time. Now, the two errors I'm going to cover, and believe me, there are many errors in Protestant theology, but it would probably take multiple episodes to cover every one of them. 
as it is, this episode, I'm thinking is going to run to two episodes. It's not through my choice. The app I'm on will only allow me to do an hour, 30 minute episode. I've already tried three times to record this. And this, this app has given me issues. So this, this probably is going to be a two-parter. Um, I just ask for your patience and to bear with me. If, if you find this content to, you know, uh, informative. So the first, the first heir of Protestantism is sola scriptura. That's Latin for Bible alone. Now the reformers back in the 15th century, Latin was the language for theology. So they used Latin terminology. Um, basically, Bible uh, sola scriptura means Bible alone. Uh, a little background into the Bible. The canon of scriptures, meaning the Bible at the time of Luther in 1517, was set at 73 books at the Council of Rome in 382. Please take note, when the, when the canon of scriptures was set, it was set in 382. Martin Luther revolted from the Catholic Church in 1517. So, anyway, this, um, this canon that was approved at the Council of Rome was also approved by the Council of Trent. I'm not ex exactly sure without looking it up. I know that the uh, Council of Trent ran for 40 or 50 years. I believe it began in like the 1540s and ran because it was off and on. Because at, at the time of the Council of Trent, there was um, the Wars of the Reformation, as they call it. And so the Protestant armies would often try to get into Trent to, dis to, to capture the cardinals and the bishops that were at there, that were at Trent. You know, they were trying to capture them. So it had to be called off several times. And because it was the 16th century, it wasn't like they could jump on their jet and fly back there once the threat had subsided. So it, it ran... For, for about, uh, till the early 1600s, I think there were three popes involved in it. And there were periods of several years where the council did not meet because of the threats, the outside threats that the Protestants were giving them. Okay. Now, when La Martin Luther revolted against the Catholic Church. And for those of you who may not know, Martin Luther was a monk. He was a Catholic priest. The founder of your theology was actually a Catholic. And 
when he broke with the Catholic Church, not only did he break his vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and his vows to the Catholic Church, he married a nun who also had the same vows of poverty, chastity, obedience, and fidelity to the Catholic Church, and he married her. Now, this is not my Catholic bias at all. This is, I'm, I'm speaking strictly from a principled standpoint. If the founder of your theology took vows to God, the God, you know, the God that you say you love and worship and want to be obedient to, and then broke them, you know, because he felt like it. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean here. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you honestly, what kind of character do you think that gentleman has? Seriously, would be, would this be the type of person, a person who takes a vow to God and breaks it because he feels like it? Would you want to live under his rule? I mean, if you don't care, that's his private life. I don't care. Well, first of all, he started his own religion. That's hardly private life. You know, if he had been a Catholic monk who broke his vows, married a nun, and got her to break her nuns and lived privately, I would agree with that. That's a private matter. That's between him and God. But he publicly broke with the church and started his own religion his own theology. That's pretty public. But, you know, uh, just, just as an aside, I don't think that modern Americans care much about, about principles from their leadership. I remember distinctly how most Americans made excuses for Bill Clinton for committing perjury and blaming the Republicans and saying they were it was all about sex when it was all about breaking the law. And that, you know, oh, it's a private matter. It doesn't matter. While at the same time, getting mad at Michael Jordan because after a game, he went to a casino and bet his own money. You know, I think it's, I think it's a reflection of society when we hold our athletes and entertainers to a higher standard than we do our elected officials. But maybe I'm just old and cranky. Anyway, when he revolted against Rome, he removed seven books out of the Old Testament that contradicted his teachings. Now, remember the timeline here, guys. The Catholic Bible was already established when he broke from it, broke from the Catholic Church. Now, he was saying Bible alone. What was the first thing that he did 
Well, he removed seven books out of the Old Testament of a Bible that had already existed. He didn't invent it. King James didn't invent it. That this Bible existed before these guys as 70, uh, 72 books. And he removed seven of those books out of the Old Testament because they contradicted his teachings. The books were Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Sirach, I'm going to spell that, S-I-R-A-C-H, Barak, B-A-U-C-H, and 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Now, I want you to remember that the Council of Rome in 382 settled on the canon for the Catholic Bible. Okay? It was 382. Luther revolted from the Catholic Church in 1517. We're talking 1,200 years. For 1,200 years, the Bible had been unchanged before Luther decided, eh, nah, I'm just going to do what I want. I'm going to take, take out these, you know, I don't agree with these books. And yes, because I'm a Protestant, I am well aware that Protestants consider this deutal, deuteronical canonical. That's Protestant garbage. They are not deuter, deuteronical canonical. These books were written in the original Bible. You know, that's Protestant garbage. The, these were in the original Bible, the Bible that existed long before Luther and King James and, you know, um, King Henry VIII came along. Now, it also needs to be pointed out that when he removed those seven books from the Old Testament canon, he was also going to remove the book of James in the New Testament, by the way. Now, remember what I said that he removed those seven books because they contradicted his theology? He also wanted to remove the book of James for the same reason. Basically, his theology was that we are predestined to hell or heaven from the beginning of time and that we cannot merit grace and that we should not even try to show our gratitude and love to Jesus because we were dirty, rotten sinners and that his grace covered our sins and to actually try to to lead a holy life, to, to lead a form life, was actually a heresy because God had already decided that we were going to be part of the elect. And by trying to show our gratitude and love, we were calling him a liar. And the book of James said, um, you know, you live by faith and works. Basically, Luther's definition of faith it was a bastardization of 
the faith described by St. Paul in his epistles? Because St. Paul even said in his epistles that work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling. Now think about this. If you're predestined from the beginning of time to, to get to heaven, why would you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Why would you need to do it? You're already assured, assured your salvation. But if you're following the Bible, you know, um, and Luther says Bible alone, isn't this a contradiction of Luther's theology? And, and um, he, uh, Luther, Luther, uh, his theology is full of contradictions. Um, like I said, there's, there's not only just that passage of work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I'm going to give a list of scriptures that contradict Protestant theology. They're not a complete list. I didn't, quite frankly, I didn't have the time to read the entire New Testament and make a list. And quite frankly, um, this this show the show motto is i'm i'm here to inform not to convince and if any of the listeners here are protestants who read their bible um are you even aware of what protestant theology teaches are you even aware of the contradictions involved in Protestant theology against the scriptures? Anywho, so this gave us the 66 books of the Protestant Bible. Now, I know that there are certain Protestants out there who are going to say, no, 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 Luther gave us the, the, the Protestant Bible. The, the Catholic Bible was, was uh, written by a bunch of heretics and Martin Luther came along and fixed it. Or they'll say, you know, it depends on what kind of Protestant you're dealing with. Or they'll say something along these lines of, well, they're... There were um, proto-Protestants living before the time of the Reformation who wrote the King James Bible and they buried it to keep the evil heretical Catholics from, from getting it and burning it. And this happened in England and um, King James II found a copy and he printed it. You'll hear very late variations along these two lines. It's garbage. It's, you know, the fact that, you know, people with, I would like to think a modicum of intelligence can believe these outlandish stories is just something I don't comprehend. So... The original Bible had 72 books. Luther uh, took away seven and was going to 
wasn't was going to take out the book of James. Oh, by the way, what kept him for taking out the book of James? It wasn't from spiritual or theological considerations that the book of James needed to be in the Bible. He said of the book of James, it's the epistle of straw meaning it was garbage and not fit for consumption. What kept him to keep the, the book of James in the Protestant Bible was the fact that one of his advisors told him if he took out the book of James, that might be a step too far. That might actually get people revolting against him and his new quote-unquote theology. Now, I sincerely want to ask you this question. This is, this is not some cheap internet game. I sincerely would like to ask you this question. If you say that the Bible alone is your authority, why would you remove seven books out of your sacred book? I think that's a fair question. Sola Scriptura came from Luther. That is part of Protestant theology. All Protestants deal with Scripture alone. So my question is, well, if the Scripture, if the Bible, you know, you're not going to go with tradition, you're not going to go with uh, the teaching of the saints and, and previous um, bishops and teachers of the church, if that's all nonsense and you're just going to follow the Bible, why would the first act that you commit would be take seven books out of the Bible that had already existed in the Bible? Now, I don't, I realize that there are Protestants out there who write entire books justifying what Luther did. What I'm asking you to do is remove this from the realm of why Luther did what he did and just think about your common sense. Luther says, Bible alone is his only authority, but the first thing he does is, is take seven books out. Why would, you, why would you mutilate the Bible that you said is your ultimate authority? Like I said, don't, don't bring in you know, religious or theological. Cons Think about why would he do this from, 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 a, from a human standpoint. In other words, you know, be a little skeptical. Why would he do that? Now, I know Protestants also is part of their theology because I was one, remember. They, they object, if, like, like I said, if there's a tradition or former bishops or teachers of the church you know, who aren't in the Bible, if it's not located in the Bible, they don't, they don't want to hear it. They want nothing to do with it. They're, you know, they've got no time for it. Well, I want to ask you this. 
Where does it mention in the Bible Protestantism, Protestantism, and Bible alone? And, you know, I know that there's going to be some smart guys out there. Where does it say the Immaculate Conception Mary in the Bible? Well, as a Catholic, I can honestly tell you, we don't teach Bible alone. We use Bible, we use biblical teachings, but we've never claimed to be Bible alone. We have traditions and we have teachings that we adhere to that are outside the Bible. And if you know church history, you would understand how this is pretty commonsensical. But, so, yeah, if you, you know, the Immaculate Conception's not in the Bible. Well, we're, we're not claiming to be only Bible-only guys. We have traditions and we have teachings that we adhere to. Now, in his epistle, St. Paul mentions... Hang on to the traditions you have received by us, meaning the apostles. And there's also a passage that says, by, also by St. Paul, faith comes by hearing. For those of you who are unaware of church history, when Jesus ascended into heaven, the average Judean, because remember, Jesus taught in what is present-day Israel. Um, he taught the average Judean was a peasant, and most of the population was functionally illiterate. They could not read, and they could not write. How the how the average Jewish person at the time of Jesus learned Jewish law was through going to um, the synagogue. Okay. Well, it was the same, same thing after Jesus ascended into heaven. And not only were the, uh, the Judean uh, peasantry ignorant, but once, once um, Christianity started spreading into North Africa and Europe and parts of Asia, well, guess what? You know, majority of the people that joined the church were functionally illiterate, meaning that, you know, they couldn't grab just grab a scroll or buy a scroll off the, the scroll seller and start reading and interpreting for themselves. They actually needed teachers to, um, to help them understand what the teachings were. And by the way, one of the biggest um, contradictions to um, the, the idea that you just pick up a Bible and interpret, your, to interpret it yourself is in the book of Acts where the chariot driver of the queen of Ethiopia is sitting in his chariot and he's reading a scroll. I forget which apostle it was, but he comes across this, this uh, chariot driver and he asks him, and this is all in the book of Acts. Look it up. He asks him, he says, well, do you understand what you're reading? 
And I liked this, the way this chariot driver was thinking because he, he gave him the straight, the straight shot. He said, how can I know what it means unless somebody explains it to me? <laughs> so, um, basically, the majority of the populations... Um, we're basically illiterate. Now, starting toward the 13 and 1400s, when cities started to grow, you did have a middle class of educated people, or at least they could read and write and count. But these tended to be, you know, lawyers, doctors, and merchants. Your average peasant working in the field, once again, was functionally illiterate. And while we're at it, I want to stress the point, because a lot of Protestants seem to be ignorant on this point. From Jesus' ascension, basically until Luther's revolt, Bibles were very scarce and very hideously expensive. Okay. Let's just say there was a merchant in the year 100. And he's literate. He could read. Even if he could find a scroll seller who would commission, you know, who would say, write the book of St. John the gospel according to St. John for him, it would be out of his means to pay for it because you have, to, you have to make the paper, make the scroll, and then find somebody to write on the scroll. This is going to cost a lot of money. And um, even merchants... And, and doctors and lawyers, um, they could commission a monastery to write them a Bible. But once again, it's taking up scarce resources, so it's going to be hideously expensive. They're probably not going to be able to afford to do this, even if they could read it. Now, if you're... If you're familiar with history, you will know that the Gutenberg Press came out around the time of Luther's Revolt. As a matter of fact, the Gutenberg Press has been credited with spreading Luther's heresy all over Europe at a faster rate. It's just been noted that. And it's true. But even at the time of the Gutenberg Bible... Only the most wealthiest people could afford to own a Bible. Your average middle class or peasant could not afford to. Now, uh, about 100 to 150 years after the Gutenberg Bible, Bibles became inexpensive to the point where a working class guy in a city, you know, working in a print shop, working in a nail shop, you know, whatever, Whatever task he was doing, he probably could afford his own version of the Bible. But this, 
you know, this nonsense of, well, you know, people, people in the time of Jesus just read their own Bible. That's garbage. It's not historically accurate. It's just cognitive dissonance. So, the belief that the Bible is the sole source of faith, as I've just pointed out, it's not historical. It's illogical because of the facts at hand. And it's harmful to the faith to say that any uneducated person or yeah, any un and when I say uneducated, I just mean ignorant person. If say like you're an eight-year-old kid and you pick up a Bible and you interpret it for yourself, you know, that's that's not that's not good for the kid's faith because he's already learning that he can he you know, basically that whatever he reads in the Bible and he thinks those passages mean, that's what it means. And it's destructive to unity. Um, and and here's, here's the point I'm going to make. If you're teaching... If you're teaching that anybody can just pick up a Bible and interpret for themselves what it means, well, at this point, I'm talking about present time, there are about 7 billion human beings. Well, that's 7 billion interpretations if you take the Protestant line. So... The, in the New Testament, it's, it teaches you should be of one mind, meaning that you should all agree to the same doctrine and to the same um, creed that's being taught. Well, how is that possible if you have 7 billion different interpretations? You know, and people are all individuals. You know, some may band together. Others are probably going to say, to heck with you guys, you know. I don't think it means this. I'm going to follow my own interpretation. The apostles... The apostles had to teach... It, their successors and the members of the infant church, the divinity of Christ, the redeeming value of the apostles, or I'm sorry, the redeeming value of Christ's passion. And the, the average believer had to believe what the apostles were teaching was true. And the first members of the church believed 
that the apostles were the messengers of God. Now, follow this train of thought. Jesus was God. He had his 12 disciples. And he gave them the power to teach and preach. Now, the last disciple died in 100 AD. During Jesus died, uh, ascended into heaven between 33 AD and 34 AD. In that time, in addition to teaching and preaching Jesus' gospel, they had to make successors. They're human. They're not going to live forever. So they had to make sure that Jesus' teachings and preachings were being followed faithfully. Um, and in addition, the reason why the early, the early church considered the apostles the messengers of God, those of you who have read the New Testament, the Gospels in particular, know that Jesus gave them the power to perform miracles in his name. So part of the reason why Christianity grew in the beginning was you had these guys who had followed Jesus and they told their listeners about the miracles he performed and they performed the same miracles as he did and i.e. they were messengers of God. That doesn't take a lot of brain power to figure out. Um, anyway, these apostles had to appoint successors. Okay. Now, I'm going to get into the Doctrine of Apostolic Succession. But basically, it just it went down the line. The apostles trained their successors and their successors trained, you know, their successors, so on and so forth. Now, I want to ask you another question. Have any of you ever met your fellow Protestants who could tell you the traditions and the histories of the church prior to Martin Luther? And I'm asking you this once again. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm not. promise you. But when I was a Protestant, I know, speaking for myself, when I initially started researching Christianity, I had heard the term church father, but I didn't think much of it until I was three years into Protestantism and I came, this, these books were actually written by Protestants. They were quotes from the church fathers. And I had to look into, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who are the church fathers? And then I found out that the church fathers were Catholic bishops and teachers from like 
100 AD after John uh, St. John the Apostle died to around four or 500 AD, which I believe is the, the last church father. And there are some Protestants who hypocritically quote the church fathers, in particular, Augustine. Now, I've read enough Protestant theology to know why they like Augustine. Now, there, there are theological reasons. And, you know, this isn't, this isn't a theological show. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to get into too, try not to get into too much theology. What I will tell you, though, is is that when they hypocritically quote these church fathers, they will either A, they won't, they won't record the church fathers saying implicitly that they were Catholic and that if you weren't Catholic, you were a heretic, or they will downplay other church fathers who who come right out and say, now I'm implicitly Catholic, you know, and they'll, they'll, they'll ignore those fathers. Now, this is, the, the, the fact that the uh, church fathers were Catholic is proven, proven by the fact that before Martin Luther broke with the Catholic Church in 1517, you, were, you had four choices. You were either a Catholic, an atheist, a schismatic, or a heretic. Those were your four choices. And if you were not Catholic, most communities were Catholic and would have nothing to do with you. Now, I know, I know, because, you know, I've been Protestant and I've I've heard a lot of, you know, Protestant ignorance. I'm going to call it ignorance cuz I am trying to be charitable. But they'll sit there and say that the people that the Catholic Church called heretics were actually proto-Protestants who it was the the Catholics who were the heretics and and they um, they uh, oppressed these these proto Protestants, and um, you know that that um, Const uh, Emperor Constantine was there. You know he he started the Catholic religion, and he imported a bunch of pagan rites and ideas, and that actually the Romans, you know, during the early Christian era. They were actually Catholics who fed the, the proto-Protestants to the lions. You're going to hear stuff like this. Um, now, I'm not saying every Protestant is this ignorant or gullible, but there are a lot of people out there who, who are saying these type of things. Um, it has been written 
by secular authors, not not I mean Catholic authors, obviously, you know, they uh they teach the truth, but there have been even secular authors who teach that you know the Christians that were sacrificed to the line. Uh, by the way, they weren't just sacrificed to wild beasts. They were hung on crosses cru- uh, and lit on fire, crucified, put on gridirons. Anyway, these guys were the followers of the apostles. Um, you know, if if you're if you're in so invested in the in the ignorance that no Protestantism existed before Luther, um, I humbly pray that you will you'll be freed from this uh, notion because it's it's not historically accurate. And um, I bumped into Protestants. That, you know, they read it on, you know, uh, Pastor Jim Bob's blog. You know, the Catholic Church is the um, whore of Babylon. And, you know, they'll, they'll, t- they'll spin these wild tales. But um, I've actually seen the books by um, secular university professors who, you know, they're secular, but they cover church history. And even they've admitted that, you know, basically the church was Catholic before Luther revolted. So I, I hope, I hope you will challenge your, uh, worldview. Now, The infant church, when I say the infant church, I'm talking about the church that was started after Christ ascended into heaven. Um, there was there was no doctrine for private interpretation. There was no there was no doctrine for that. Because before 100 AD, you literally had the 12 apostles of Christ teaching their individual uh, diocese, or they were going from town to town preaching. And, you know, because these guys were, uh, they were doing miracles and, you know, these guys had actually sat and, and listened to Jesus and seen his miracles. You know, if, if you were Joe Blow, you know, pew warmer and you said well i don't believe what saint john the evangelist said he he was wrong on this you know i i believe it was this you know you were you were automatically a heretic and you were excluded from christian communities by the way guys you know for all your talk about you know you being biblically inclined it says in the new testament it talks about dealing with heretics and schismatics. Okay? So, 
I just want to play a thought experiment with you. Let's just say you're laboring under delusion that the original church was Protestant and somehow got infiltrated by the evil Catholics. If you also believe that the Bible is your your guideline, your faith, since it talks about excluding heretics and schismatics out of your congregation, why didn't these original Protestants exclude the evil heretical Catholics out of their out of their communities. You know, I'm not trying to play a gotcha game. I, I, I want you to think about the logical conclusion of what your your theology teaches you. I'm not I'm not doing this to you know win cheap points. I'm not because as I said, I I was a Protestant, okay? And even when I was Protestant, I never brought, bought into the garbage that the original, the original Christians were Protestant and they were infiltrated by evil heretical Catholics who corrupted the, you know, corrupted their incorruptible church. It contradicts, it contradicts scripture and it also contradicts common sense and history. Now, I want to give you a couple quotes. Now, in my show notes, I'm going to put in some passages of the New Testament that contradict Protestant theology. So, um... But I wanna I wanted to quote First Thessalonians chapter two verse thirteen and Romans chapter ten verse seventeen. I repeat first Thessalonians chapter two verse thirteen and Romans chapter ten verse seventeen. Now at the time of the apostles, in other words, in the first like 70 years after Jesus ascended, faith faith was considered, or I'm sorry, consisted of submission to authorized teachings. In other words, you were considered a faithful Catholic if you submitted to the teachings of your authorized bishop, your authorized priest, and if their if their teachings were the same teachings that the apostles had handed down to to the other uh, bishops and priests that succeed uh, not succeeded them uh, followed them. Now, if um, your faith consists of um, using your private interpretation, if your faith says, well, you know, um, 
the Holy Ghost speaks to me, you know, um, he speaks to me and he tells me what to think. Well, ultimately, private interpretation comes to uh, private judgment. Because, you, you know, whether you know it or not, you could say the Holy Ghost is infallible. And he is. I'm not trying to say he isn't. But unless the Holy Ghost comes to you in person and says, hey, I'm going to give you these interpretations and you, you know, these are what you're supposed to believe. And by the way, some of the founders of Protestant sects have said angels have come and spoken to them. Most notably, Joseph Smith of the Mormons. But how do you know infallibly that the Holy Ghost is telling you what to think. How do you know infallibly? And by the way, when I say infallibly, I'm talking infallible means that it's it's God's literal truth. You're you're it's God's literal truth, you know, it cannot be argued or denied. It's God's literal truth. Well, how do you know that the Holy Ghost is speaking to you infallibly? Um, and basically, you know, you may think, you may think, oh, the Holy Ghost, he's, he's telling me what to think. He's telling me what to think, but you're actually, whether you know it or not, you're, you're actually making a judgment call. You are. It's like if you go down the street and you see some homeless guy and you think, oh, that guy's probably an AIDS-ridden crack addict. And, you know, it's the same thing. Because you lack context, you don't know that guy's background. You don't even know him personally unless you talk to him. So if you look at him and you say, ah, he's an AIDS AIDS-ridden cracked addict. Okay, guys, um, it's going to be time for part two. Hold on. Okay, guys, I just wanted to say this <laughs> This isn't part two. Like I said earlier, um, I can only do an hour and 30 minutes. This is going to run a little over an hour 30. This is not part two. This is the second portion of the episode, and yes, there will be a part two more than likely. So, anyway, when you're when you're judging scripture, it's like judging, you know, a homeless dude. Unless you talk to the man, you have no context. You're thinking he's he's an AIDS-ridden crack crack addict. In actuality, the guy could have been a CEO of his own company, fallen on hard times, and is reduced to begging for change on the street corner. But in your mind, since you haven't talked to him, 
you know, you just decide he's 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 a loser. And then he deserves what he gets. So when you know when a person is allowed to make his own interpretation and he's his own highest authority, this is not faith. I mean, you could say, you know, oh, I get my uh, inspiration from the Holy Spirit. How do you know? How do you infallibly know? In other words, how, how is your judgment unquestionable? It isn't. And by the way, this leads to relativism. This, you know, before, before I decided to get serious with God, I was into politics big time. And I remember back in 2010, 2012, the, the Vatican II church, which I was in, was talking about moral relativism. It was all over, you know, all over the political scene at the time. Oh, we have too much moral relativism. We have, well, guess what? That's the logical, that's the logical conclusion of private interpretation. Because if you're going to use your own private judgment when it comes to what you claim is the inspired word of God, I want you to think about what I'm saying here. You're saying, yeah, the Bible is the inspired word of God, but I can make my own interpretation of it. Think about what you're saying. You're talking about the God who is the author of time and space, you know, and he knows everything about everything because he's the creator of everything. So, you know, we're talking about the same God who knows how basically the end of the earth is going to happen. We're talking about the same God who knows every aspect of your life. He knows how many hairs are on your head, how many cells are in your body, what your secret fantasies are, you know? He knows that you've been checking out that hot secretary that wears the low-cut blouse and has breast implants. He knows about that time you were five and you touched, uh, you played doctor with your, with your neighbor. You know, he knows everything. But you, you're going to say that you have a, uh, you have a unquestionable uh, authority to interpret his scripture, which you've already admitted is inspired by him. Now, I want to ask you a question, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, to ruffle any feathers, 
But doesn't this sound a little presumptuous to you? Think of who you're talking about. You know, this is, this is the God who created you, who gave you everything in your life. And yet you're going to claim the authority to interpret his, his, his inspired word? Now, to those Protestants out there, and um, having been one, I, I have fallen into this there at the beginning. Now, some Protestants will say, at best, the Catholic Church was the true church, but it became corrupt and worldly, and it needed the, 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 the reformers, as you call them, to come and make the necessary corrections to put it back on its course again. At worst, you will say, the Catholic Church is the whore of Babylon. It was never the true church. And that God waited for 1,500 years to bring about these reformers to correct the errors that it had been perpetrating. Now, I'm going to get, I'm going to, I'm going to indulge those two interpretations. I'm going to indulge them because I fell into the first camp. I thought that the Catholic Church was the true church, but it became corrupt and worldly, and it needed the reformers, so called, to correct its abuses. Okay. Now, in Scripture, in Scripture, in the New Testament, it says you should be of one mind, meaning everybody within the true church should agree. Okay? Furthermore, in his Gospels, I think it was the book of Matthew, Jesus states that there is only one faith and one baptism. He also states Narrow is the road to heaven, broad is the path to hell. Well, he says destruction, but destruction means hell, basically. Now, if your interpretation is true, that, you know, either the reformers were, were reforming a corrupt church, or that the reformers were true Christians fighting the evils of a heretical church. I want you to think about this very carefully, please. I beg you. Well, if these reformers were the true church and St. Paul said that you should be of one mind, why would it not be united why would it not be united in purpose? Why would, why would Protestantism, you know, whichever branch you choose, if it was the true church, why would it not be one church? In other words, if Luther was doing God's work, why wouldn't the Catholic Church, you know, 
and take your pick, either got corrupted or it was the horror of Babylon to begin with, why wouldn't it fade into nothingness? Because God's not, not God is not the author of confusion, guys. I mean, even my own Protestant preachers told me that. It's not, he's not the author of confusion. He does not want varying inter, uh, doctrines in his, uh, in his true church. He doesn't want that. He's not the author of confusion. So the next question would be, why are there 40,000 different sects of Protestantism? Now, I do realize there is free will. God is not the author of confusion. He is not. But men have free will. Unlike Luther and unlike Calvin, the Catholic Church teaches that you know, that people have free will and he does have intentions for those people. Now, if they choose to abuse their free will and, you know, do things that are outside of God's providence, he's going to allow them to make those mistakes. But out of those mistakes, he will make the necessary corrections. Okay? So... Um, you know, we have free will and he, you know, God's going to allow, we're, we are not little marionettes on God's puppet strings. We will be allowed to make our own mistakes. And by the way, guys, I'm, I am not perfect at any means at any time. I have made horrendous horrendous I've done horrendous things but God allowed me to use my free will and allowed me a chance to repent and um what what uh and by the way what I did I was not intending to be quote unquote evil I wasn't intending that, but because I wasn't following God's God's word and his plan, um, he he allowed me to to do what I did, and out of those, he gave me the the grace of wisdom to understand that I needed to repent and reform my life and get closer to him. Okay, so, um, what I'm saying is that the, the Catholic Church existed for 1,500 years, and then all of a sudden, Martin Luther, Calvin, and Henry VIII show up, and they say, no, 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 no. This church that existed for 1,500 years, it's all wrong, it's corrupt, it's heretical, and you need us to tell you how to really lead your lives. Now, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you, um, honestly, if the Catholic Church were not 
Jesus' true church, God would not allow a heretical and faithless church that was leading souls to hell to exist. He said in his Gospels, St. Paul said, and all the other apostles all said, God does not tolerate purposeful error. If the Catholic Church was heretical and was leading souls to hell, he would not have allowed it to stand for 1,500 years. And by the way, along those lines, St. Paul and many of the other apostles in their, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, many of the other apostles in their epistles state that there were, in, in the later days, there would be false teachers. Okay? And if I haven't already mentioned this passage in my, um, at the beginning, it, bear in mind, St. Paul wrote, you know, a few years after Christ ascended into heaven, that in the last days, people would not endure sound doctrine and they would have itching ears and go to false teachers and those false teachers would tell them what they wanted to hear. Now, doesn't it sound like to you, this, this quotation I just gave you, doesn't it sound like, and if you've been a Protestant, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. You'll have Brother Jim Bob, and he disagrees on a passage of Scripture with Brother Enos. Let's just say it's John 3.16, St. John 3.16. And, you know, they, they're, they're at loggerheads. They can't agree on the true meaning of that passage. So they go to Pastor uh, Bob. They go to Pastor Bob and they say, hey, Pastor Bob, we can't agree on, on St. John 3.16. What, what say you? Who's right, me or Brother Enos? And Pastor Bob says, well, I think Brother Enos, his interpretation is correct. Now, Brother Jim Bob has three choices. He can submit to the teachings of his pastor and there are, some, there are some Protestants who do this. Or he can go to another church that, you know, fits his liking. And by the way, guys, I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, my whole family is Protestant. Protestant to the core. And they do, you know, my uncle, remember my famous uncle from the earlier passage I was talking about, he would do this. It, it, he admitted to me that he did this, that he would go to a church and once the pastor or one of the parishioners, uh, I'm sorry, not parishioners, one of the members of that church disagreed with his interpretation of, of the Bible, then he would move on to the next church and he just, he would do this. And by the way, those of you who follow these things know that 
Other Protestants have complained about this phenomenon. They call it church hopping, where basically you hop from church to church. You know, hopefully you will settle on a church that you can that you can settle on, but most people keep bouncing from church to church because they're never satisfied with the churches, uh, the teachings they're given. Now, there's the third option. He can start his own church. Now, if he starts his own church, he's probably thinking, well, screw Pastor Bob. You know, Pastor Bob, I can run a church better than he can. And Lord knows I'm more intelligent and, and uh, the Holy Ghost works better through me than he does. I'll just start my own church. Which any high school graduate or any intelligent middle schooler will tell you that's why there are 40,000 sects of Protestantism. I want to give you... Uh, I'm going to give you some quotes from the New Testament in my show notes that contradict Protestant theology. Okay, but I'm going to ask you, I'm just going to ask, if you're not interested in reading these passages, can I ask you, can I ask you to do me one favor? Just read 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. You don't have to read the rest. But I, I especially want you or ask you to read 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Now the second, the second uh, error of Protestantism is sola fide, which is Latin for justification by faith or faith alone. Now, the problem with sola fide is if a man is his own pope, he doesn't need ordained teachers and priests. And when I say priests, a priest is supposed to be Jesus' representatives on earth who, uh, what the Catholic Church teaches, they're other Christs. In other words, no, they're not Christ himself, but they're, they're his deputies, for lack of a better term, on earth to perform what the apostles performed to teach and preach for his true church. Now, these priests are called priests of sacrifice. Now, the Catholic Church has two types of sacrifice. There's the sacrifice of mass, which is the recreation of Jesus's uh, crucifixion at Calvary. Uh, without getting too deep in the theological weeds, basically, um, the Catholic Church has a doctrine which is called transubstantiation. All that means is. 
is that when the priest gives the blessing over the Eucharist, the bread and wine, he's turning it into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. And this is supposed to help keep you in faith. Okay? So he's, he's recreating the sacrifice at Calvary. Okay? The second sacrifice is the sacrifice of the average person in the pew. And the sacrifice they're talking about is, is if you realize that of all the, 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 uh, the things that Christ went through to help you get the chance at salvation, the crucifixion, the beating he endured, he literally had the stuffing kicked out of him. Um, and by the way, the you know, I've I've heard people complain, oh, the passion of the Christ is too bloody. Well, if you read the accounts of what he went through during his his scourging, um, you know. If that's, if that's too graphic for you, I mean, these things are recorded. They're recorded history. He went through these so that you would have uh, a chance at salvation. And you can't, you, you make sacrifices out of gratitude and love that you're showing Jesus, I'm grateful and I love you, so I'm going to amend my life. I'm going to turn from my wicked ways, and I'm going to try to follow what your teachings are. I'm not doing this because, um, I'm not, I mean, there are some people, yeah, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to do these things, and that's not wrong. Luther taught it was wrong. He taught it was a heresy. Oh, you don't want to go to hell? Don't you have trust in his predestination? Well, you're a heretic. There's nothing wrong with fearing hell. But you should try to be getting to the place where you're doing it out of love and gratitude. You're sacrificing. If you like to drink, you know, and get drunk and, and smoke weed and, and, you know, go to the bars and bang bang loose women and watch porno or, you know, whatever your sin might be, if you're unwilling to make those sacrifices, then how can you say you love God? He literally got his butt kicked so that you would have a chance to reform your life to get to heaven. Now, I'm coming up on part two of this podcast. So um, if you're in, if, if you, what you think I'm saying has some merit, tune into the second part and hopefully we can wrap this up. Thanks a lot, guys. Stay tuned for part two. God bless you.